We recorded this episode as a part of a podcast series on the occasion of COP27. Each episode illustrates the breadth and depth of Marshall McLennan's climate capabilities. The issues addressed throughout the series include investment transition, the insurance sector's role in climate adaptation, communities and businesses' exposure to physical risks, and how companies need to address the inextricable link between climate and nature. Find more information about how Mercer, Marsh and other Marsh McLennan businesses will be addressing these issues at COP27 and beyond in the podcast description. The blocking of the Suez Canal in May 2021 caused by the Ever Given demonstrated the vulnerability of global supply chains to disruptions to the world's canals and waterways. The just-in-time nature of shipping means that there is limited redundancy and these kinds of routes become pressure points for cascading risk. With increasing incidents of disruptive weather events driven by climate change, greater focus needs to be given to understanding these potential critical points of failure. I'm Nick Fall, Head of Climate and Sustainability Risk and Innovation at Marsh, and I'm pleased to be joined by two colleagues to discuss how these waterways may be impacted over time by physical climate risks, what the broader implications are, and what can be done about them. Dr Bev Adams is Head of Climate and Catastrophe Resilience based in the UK, and Scott Williams is the ESG Coordinating Director for the Middle East and Africa region. Welcome both of you. So let's get started. Why is this important? Bev, why don't you give your thoughts? Well, every single person who is listening into this podcast today, Nick, will buy things. And for all those people who are buying things, 30% of all of the consumer goods around the world are traveling through routes like the Suez Canal. So when there's a disruptive event, it's touching each and every one of us. And so for us, as things like climate change begin to hit the world, the key thing that my mind turns to is how is that going to affect presents for birthdays, Christmas time, all those good things that we just very much take for granted. And for me, knowing that 80 to 90 percent of the goods around the world are shipped by sea, it's really important that we understand where there are key vulnerabilities these hotspots that can really be a make or break situation. And, you know, in my job, I do an awful lot of study of risk and I get to look behind the scenes and I get to look at things um, through the lens of where might it go wrong and provide guidance to governments and businesses and even sort of shipping companies about how they can help think that through and avoid it. And it really struck me for this particular case that, Given that the whole travel through the Suez Canal is saving, on average, seven to 10 days of shipping time, that's an awful lot. So when you do have a disruption, the ripple effects and knock-on effects are huge. There's also a little bit of me, because I work on climate and um, I work on resilience, that thinks it's absolutely critical that we save the carbon by not going the long route and so it doubled down and it really increases the importance of us having good plans to make sure that as these kind of risks grow and grow, that we understand them, but that we also know how to counter them. And of course, I've sort of focused in here on the Suez Canal, but it's a global thing, right? Yeah. So our ability to make sure the whole system keeps running globally with climate, huh, very much part of my job and my thinking day to day. Fantastic. Thanks, Bev. You, you, you picked up on the 
the the the Suez Canal and the the ever given sort of incident that um, that that took place recently that I referred to. Uh, Scott, could you just talk to us a little bit about what actually happened there? What was the what was the course of events? Sure, Nick. So maybe just to set some some context before the ever given event, if if you look at around ten to twelve percent of global trade actually is, is thought to pass through the Suez the Suez Canal. And in terms of the Egyptian economy, you know, the canal represents a very significant source of national income, about two to three percent of, of Egypt's GDP. And it's also one of the government's main sources of foreign currency, with 60% of the currency of the, the country's um, foreign trade transferring through the waterway. So when we go to the ever given incident, we can understand the impacts of the canal being unavailable, including those from an insurance perspective. So, so maybe just to refresh people's minds, in May 2021, the Ever Given ran aground in the canal due to strong winds. A heavily laden ship going through an area like the Suez Canal actually can act almost like a sail mm. and be blown off course. It makes navigation quite high risk. And that's what happened with the Ever Given, especially in the case where kind of near the sides of the canal, the depth is, is variable as well. And to give an idea of the context of the disruption it caused, you know, the canal facilitates about $10 billion of goods daily. And with a six-day blockage, as was caused by the Ever Given, it's estimated to result in $60 billion of, of trade disruption. And, and also the kind of the trapping of an estimated $700 million of cargo behind the Ever Given that just couldn't get through the canal. Right. So, so while those impacts are, are quite varied, the insurance considerations are, are pretty important as well as firms try to cover their losses. Could be something like the physical damage to the Ever Given as a ship itself, loss of revenue from the, the Suez Canal Authority, and the cost of salvage operations and business interruption for the owners and charterers of, of block vessels. Even things like perishable goods that were stuck in the canal and, and went off, so to speak, you know, that all has an insurance impact. And I think what the Ever Given event demonstrated is that while a blockage of any global logistics bottleneck for any reason can have a significant impact on supply, there are second and third order impacts that can also be significant. Fantastic. No, th thanks, Scott. So, I mean, look, we, we've we've heard about how critical these routes are. Bev, you you highlighted the uh, the issues of um, birthday presents and the like not 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 being delivered. So it affects uh, you know it affects everyone down to down to the uh, you know down to the consumer. Um, let's talk about and, and and you know we we've heard about the the ever given event. Let's talk about climate change. Um, how is um, how is it likely to impact uh, the the Suez Canal, um, Bev? Given your you know work in this space, what are your um, what are your thoughts here? Thanks, Nick. The way that we're looking at climate these days is through a new set of modelling capabilities, which businesses far and wide around the world are now needing to embrace now. I've got an insurance background, and so I've been looking at things like the risks for natural catastrophes, like hurricanes and floods, for my whole career. But where we are today is really looking at not just those events that are happening here and now, but how they're going to affect us in the future over the next 5, 10, 50, 100 years. And that's very much a new way of modelling it out. So in all of our 
business worlds, businesses are going to need to do this. And you ask a good question, what specifically is the effect of climate on the Suez Canal? And the way that I'd be looking at this is through running a set of modelling activities for that canal. And you can see the results um, in a report that Marsh is um, putting out specifically on this subject. And what you'll see through it is that there are certain kinds of risks like sea level rise, like heat stress, that in addition to things like windstorm and flooding that perhaps we're more familiar with, are also very much front of mind. So if I'm going to pick out particularly for the Suez Canal, what the major risks are, and, and Scott, you've mentioned some that happened there with the Ever Given, coastal inundation is increasing. And that's due to sea level rise largely. And what you're going to be seeing increasingly is that facilities, buildings, manufacturing companies around the coast of Egypt are going to find that the water is higher and that the occurrence of storms, driving waves on shore, it's going to cause more flooding and it's going to cause more damage. And so this is one of the things where businesses, by being aware of it, can start to think through what it's going to mean for them. So we're not talking one or two centimetres, we're talking up to half a metre, even perhaps up to 60 centimetres of increase in water level. And, you know, you just think about that if it was lined up against your house. That's quite a lot of water that we're talking about coming on shore. But how do we get a plan for dealing with it? Well, it's not all doom and gloom. And part of my role um, here at Marsh is thinking about resilience and how we adapt to it. And water and coastal inundation is just one part of it. We can't um, forget that when we're talking about places like the Suez Canal and Egypt, that it can get very hot. So with extreme heat, we're looking at temperatures of more than 45 degrees doubling by the time we get to 2050. Now, 45 degrees is pretty hot, pretty warm. We had a hot summer here in London, but it hit that perhaps one day. If that's becoming very routine, we've got to think about how that affects workforces, health and safety, all of the human element of how business is run. But more than that, we're thinking also about when it's hot, you've got less soil moisture, you've got potential for the wind whipping up sandstorms, and it's just that kind of event that affected the Ever Given. So all of those things together, that's one of the things that the boards and the executives of businesses are now having to think through. They've probably been thinking about business continuity, crisis management in the past, but you now almost need to put this new climate modelling lens on it as well and run a new set of thinking, a new set of models and a new set of scenarios. I, yeah, I think I, I, I think that's right. I mean, you've highlighted sort of two big risks there, um, increased coastal inundation risk due to primarily driven by sea level rise and uh, increase in, uh, in, in, in heat extremes, which, which could have a, a number of effects. I don't, Scott, do you, could you comment a little bit on what the sort of broader impacts of those physical changes, um, that those physical risks could, could be in the region? Sure, Nick. Yeah, but building on what Babe said, I think it's worth noting, especially for the shipping industry, that they typically run on very tight time schedules, kind of just yeah. in time in nature. So the potential for those extreme weather events to cause significant disruption, in, uh, disruption rather, to things like port services and the logistics chain is, is really high. Um, you know, as well as potential navigational issues, things like that impact on of extreme heat events that Bev mentioned, 
They can have impacts from things like productivity loss to even impacts on engine cooling of the vessels themselves. So I think what that means is things like extreme heat. So they may not have a direct independent impact on the canal, but they cause broader risks you know, arising from things like extreme heat that again can have this kind of second and third tier impacts which result in increased cost and delays for shipping companies um, and, and other stakeholders involved in the trades in a canal scenario. Un- understood. So, uh, Scott, what can be done about this? What kind of resilience measures could be considered? Yeah. So increasing the, re- the resilience of the canal and the adjacent infrastructure can take a number of forms, a kind of patchwork of, of measures, so to speak. Could be financial enablers, physical adaptation, and, and certain operational adjustments. Perhaps the most critical priority is to mitigate operational impacts and downtime of the canal. So over the short term, things like the downtime will reduce revenue, but in the longer term, operational impacts will erode business models. It will require fleets to look at alternative routings if the Suez Canal cannot be depended on. So quite significant. And whilst in recent years, capacity has increased along the canal, and in future years, there could even be further greater draft capacity due to sea level rises, practical resilience measures such as um, reviewing operating procedures are going to be necessary to, to build that resilience. You know, as with any major infrastructure project, those um, kind of material and proactive upgrades that the Suez Canal might need in supporting ports and facilities could take a number of years, even decades. So what that means is it actually necessitates access to stable long-term capital to kind of mirror the pattern of the construction of whatever infrastructure it may be. That could come in the form of government sponsorship or assistance, bond issuances by the Suez Canal Authority itself, or lending from pension funds, for example, because they tend to take that long-term investment view. So, so just some things to consider there. Thanks, Scott. Bev, what, 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 what are your perspectives here, given your, your resilience um, expertise? Yeah, I think, Scott, you've hit the nail on the head there that new ways of driving resilience as part of new projects is really important and finding ways of funding the, let's say, adaptation of existing facilities and infrastructure. Absolutely key. But for me, Nick, the really good news is that people realise this. And the UN has laid out principles for disaster resilient infrastructure, for example. And what that's really doing is laying out the beginnings of a playbook. So where you know that you need to adapt and you know that you need to be driving a slightly different set of design considerations. We like to say design resilient, adapt and um, build resilient, um, retrofit resilient, resilience weaving into every step of that that Mm. process and that thinking. There's there's frameworks there. And in my role here at Marsh, um, as you well know, we have what we call the resilience playbook. So once you know you've got a risk, you almost say, right, let's read across. That risk is due to flooding. Here are the key opportunities for improvement. These are the key things that you need to be building into your designs and your plans to make sure that you're future-proofing. And I think one of the important join-ups is, and one of the things that's always asked to me is, how does that link back to insurance? So ultimately, insurers don't want you to have losses. They want you to be resilient. And so very often these days, there are there's increasing attention on how you can drive resilience 
Um, and an example of that would be flood re. That's the UK government's flood reinsurance scheme, where they're now providing um, grants, resilience grants, to enable people who have been flooded to recover in such a way that they're never going to have the same loss again. The mindset is almost in future. Let's make sure if you were to flood, you flood Friday, but you're back up and running again on Saturday. Understood. Think, yeah, that kind of thinking is very much being spread out. And at COP27 this year, with a focus more around resilience and adaptation, I think those have to be, in a way, the two key watchwords um, that we're all going to be thinking about going forward. So I, I think uh, it, it's encouraging there to hear that there are um, frameworks out there, financing mechanisms and resilience measures that that that, that can be can be implemented to sort of combat these risks. What about what, let's let's come back specifically to the Suez Canal that, that uh, as we've been talking about it today. What are the measures, Bev? You think that uh, the Suez Canal uh, could consider specifically? So Suez Canal as a sort of overarching term, by that I'm thinking of the canal itself. I'm also thinking about the industries and businesses that um, are supporting it, uh, local to it, all of the different infrastructure within the ports and all the companies there. So I think my key message would be that you need to understand what your risk is, why you have it, when it's going to kick in, how bad it is, and then most importantly, what you're going to do about it. So that in itself is a journey and it starts with the modelling that I was discussing earlier. It moves into then doing surveys of your sites. So let's say you do have risk of sea level rise. What, how deep is it going to be? What does it mean for your business? Then once you understand that, we then move into the next stage of thinking through adaptation plans. And with that in hand, you go to your investors, you go to your board and you say, look, this is our programme of works to make ourselves future proof. But I must emphasize that that's going to be different for each business. And it's going to be different if you're somebody who owns and operates all of the roads, own and operates all the machinery for those people who, um, in fact, operate the canal itself. So this is the thing where there's common elements, the actual process of understanding the risk, but the nuance of what you do about it. That then comes back to the resilience playbook I mentioned earlier. And I think it's really important, Nick, as a final point on this, to say there is physical adaptation that you might do. You might install a seawall that's going to hold back the rising waters. But equally, you might need a flood emergency response plan for when the water does enter, what you're going to do about it. In this particular geography, of course, we're talking about things like sandstorms as well and how you try and minimise the amount of disruption for those other kinds of events, which are going to become more frequent. Then rules and regulations around how you're going to make sure that your workforce stays safe if temperatures do increase. So for me, those two things absolutely go hand in hand. And that's a very practical operational view. I've also, of course, got to have my insurance head on to say, where perhaps we do still have losses, make sure that your wordings and your coverages are absolutely going to respond to all of those different climate perils, as well as natural catastrophe perils. Thanks, Bev. Um, so we started this conversation um, around uh, the supply chain implications of of these kinds of physical risks. We've talked now about the, the, the kind of resilience measures that can be considered. Scott, 
could you comment uh, on the on the on the broader supply chain implications of of what we've talked about? Mm, absolutely. You know, building on what Babe said, I think yes, companies need to be very careful and scrutinizing the relevant you know insurance policies and products to make sure that they are fit for nature, especially when it could come to things like business interruption. You know, the Suez Canal is just one example of you know a potential bottleneck in the global trade route and logistics system. There are a number across the world, you know, other canals, other trade routes, et cetera, each with their own probably specific and individual climate risks. And I think companies, be they shipping companies, need to look at you know their normal routes and what you know dangers they are susceptible to from a climate risk perspective companies who are manufacturing in one area of the world and perhaps you know their product the demand for it is in a different part of the world need to look at the trade route that their goods take in order to ensure they are fully informed and can think about the the climate risk that will face them in that regard um, I think also from you know the the shipping industry perspective, the just in time system that they use may need to be looked at in light of an event event like we saw with the Ever Given to say, you know, how can that be adapted to ensure that they um, that disruption is minimised without also you know increasing costs through investigating lots of different alternatives. So I think they're key things for for global trade going forward. Fantastic. Thanks, Scott. Well, look, this has been a really interesting conversation. Before we wrap up, what what is the one thing you would like our listeners to take away? Maybe, Bev, I'll, I'll start with you. Mm-hmm. That, that's a really good question, Nick. I could choose from many. I think my one thing would be know your risk, don't guess it, and make sure you've got a resilience roadmap. Fantastic. Thank you, Bev. Scott, what about yourself? Yeah, so, so Nick, for me, I think um, we need to look at resilience and view it in the context of global resilience and in the context of the climate scenario that we're looking to achieve. So, you know, reaching a one and a half degree C Paris aligned climate scenario, you know, it will blunt the extent of physical risk, the, the nature of all the physical risks that we've discussed today. But on the flip side, that will increase the associated transitional risks that organisations may have to respond to. And that's something they can't ignore. So that would be my key takeaway. Thank you, Scott. Thank you both very much. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.